0: Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, everyone. What is up? I'm your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another episode of The Charlie Shrem Show powered by Waxman, where together twice a week, we get to dive deep into the heart of the Bitcoin and blockchain revolution, where I have been my whole life. <laughs> As I say it out loud, it's kind of funny. I feel old. My whole life, I've been into this Bitcoin and blockchain and crypto world. My whole life, since, since the last days of Satoshi, since shit 2011 but anyways we're together we're gonna uncover the brilliant minds innovating behind the scenes we'll be discovering the projects that are pushing the boundaries of blockchain technology and there are a lot of companies out there that you don't know about right a lot of what gets talked about in the crypto space or what reaches the ears of the mainstream audience is the final end product that a lot of cool technology innovation makes possible behind the scenes but without the geniuses developing behind the scenes, blockchain technology wouldn't be nearly as widely utilized as it is today. In this episode, we're talking to three very different people and three different projects that are pushing through the current limitations of blockchain and Bitcoin and developing what we need to turn this technology into the norm for the internet users worldwide. We're talking to some really cool people, Neil Samani from Eclipse, who's allowing everyone to have their own roll-ups. Roll it for you, roll it for you, roll it for you. Then we got Leo, co-founder of PEAQ, P-E-A-Q, who's transforming the Internet of things into the economy of things. Finally, we got an old OG, good friend of mine. He's been involved since the early days of Bitcoin, invented and conceptualized the sidechain back in 2014. His name is Paul Stortz. You don't hear about him a lot, co-founder and CEO of Layer 2 Labs, working with another good friend of mine, Austin Alexander, who is a big part of Kraken. He's a prominent Bitcoin researcher and developer. So chill out, sit back, relax, and let's get started with these insightful discussions. Our guest just got back from Consensus today. And we're going to talk to him about that. You know, every year, we kind of use conferences as the litmus test. We've had the creators of some conferences. And I think we did a whole thematic episode on how conferences are, you know, if you look at the, the prices and the markets and the general feeling of like what's going on in the space, we use conferences as, the, as that kind of litmus test of how everyone's feeling. And so last year, I remember Consensus uh, Neil, thank you. So I'll introduce you in a second. But Neil, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I remember last year's consensus, it was like, it was still the top of the, it was, it was a little bit later in the year. It was like maybe June and it was the, the height of the market. And it was still, it was still a little bit craziness. I remember getting pitched decentralized email, which is a really cool project at a pool party. It was like the only time in my life, I felt like I was on a TV show because I'm putting put my VC hat on for a second. I remember getting like the phone call, Charlie, you got to come downstairs right now you need to hear about this company. And I'm like, this is the worst time. But I feel like this is the one, but this is like happening. This, is, this was Consensus. It was Austin. It, was, it sounded like this year was, um, was a little bit more subdued from, from the guests that we've talked to that have been there, but subdued in a better way because it sounded like a lot of people were focused on the, the products and the services and the brand and less on the parties and things like that. Neil Samani, you have a super cool story in the space. You're the founder and CEO of Eclipse. Which is gives everyone private roll-ups. And I love that because we need the ability to to have blockchain as a service. I just saw a great statistic today about that. And uh your scaling solutions of being able to do it, I'm excited to talk about. You worked at Citadel as a quantitative researcher. You also worked as a software developer at Airbnb. And you kind of got your first foray into, into our lovely crypto space here in Terra. And you you talked about it and were excited about it. And then it blew up and things like that happened. And and then you started Eclipse and and it seems like you've learned a lot of different lessons very, very quickly. And it takes a lot of people a lot longer to learn the lessons that you learned in your career going from Citadel to Terra to now Eclipse. Tell us about your background and everything like that. I'm really excited to hear it.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. It was kind of like speed running the life cycle of a company. (laughs) And yeah, I remember Consensus last year too. It was right after Terra depagged. So it was in June and it was super hot. And I was trying to explore what I was going to build next. And that's what I was thinking about at that time, just building another layer one blockchain, basically. Uh, So I was basically thinking, let's take the Solana virtual machine, which is this highly optimized execution layer. Lots of folks are using it. And let's give people the option to use a different consensus like Tendermint and then spin up Cosmos layer ones that have the Solana execution layer. In the same way that Evmos, Brought the EVM to the Cosmos ecosystem. So, just to take a step back, um, like what, like so, basically, my background was, yeah, I was a quanted Citadel. Before that, I was a software engineer over at Airbnb. I left in March of last year, and I was briefly building an EVM on Terra. So, this is a way to run EVM bytecode on the Terra blockchain. So, if you have like a Ethereum smart contract or something, you can deploy it to Terra. And the reason for doing that was that Terra was doing pretty well at the time; it was growing really quickly. And there were a lot of people migrating there. So this was a way for you to take your existing programs and then join that ecosystem. And obviously, once Terra ID I scrapped the project. And I was thinking about what I would be building next. And there was one thought that people would just like fly to Ethereum and everything would basically be a roll-up on Ethereum or a layer two. And then the other thought was that um, like the, there would basically still be like sort of a multi-chain future and there'd be lots of layer one blockchains And where we landed was that the right answer is some sort of hybrid between those two answers where people do need their own chain for a variety of applications, like gaming, physical infrastructure, lots of highly regulated chains. Or I think you mentioned something very briefly at the beginning, which was private chains. And that's actually a subset, but there's a lot of reasons why people want their own dedicated chain, even if it's public. Uh, Gaming is a really good example of that. So that's what we wanted to solve for. And chatting with games in the space And just understanding what were their constraints on Solana or now we have like Aptos and Sui and all these other chains and understanding what are they able to do very easily and what's really complicated or convoluted for them to do. And what's the right uh, path or what are some possible paths for the future of on-chain gaming or the future of on-chain physical infrastructure or some of these other categories? Uh, How can we build those features that are required in order to facilitate those? And that's what motivated Eclipse, where we let people spin up their own blockchain. Uh, And there's there's other other services that have historically let you do this. There's sidechains, You could do a Cosmos chain. There's Polkadot. There's there's a lot of there's Avalanche subnets. But the disadvantage of all those ecosystems is typically one. Those are full layer one blockchains that try to provide for their own security. So they need to bootstrap a bunch of money to make that chain secure. They have to get validators. They need to coordinate updates. They need to basically be infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Uh, So it's just highly inconvenient. And the second part is that you're tied to that ecosystem. So the beauty of a roll-up or an Eclipse roll-up in particular is that you could switch the layer one that it's kind of pegged to. And you're using the layer one for security and for consensus, but uh, you could, it's, it's kind of loosely decoupled in some sense.
0: The roll-up seems to me like one of the best inventions out of the last, really like where roll-ups were, were, are being able to be taken to market like with your company, because all these different real-time products like like you said gaming and real-time infrastructure you can't wait for you can't be on a layer one and a lot of times you can't be on a layer two that has a very slow block time you need to be able to to verify certain type of actions certain type of computations in real time and then potentially later on you can settle onto like that layer one and you've kind of built this this like plug and play if you will service so what's very unique to me about this is like, I'm excited that our industry is so mature enough that we need companies and services like yourself. Because at the end of the day, game developers from Web2 are gonna, are coming in day by day and wanting to get into the Web3 space. And they go to you because they need their own like private blockchains. But at the same time, they, they need to utilize and make sure it's faster.
1: Yeah, i would I'd actually even veer away from the word private blockchain because it's not private right anyone can access it anyone can put their smart contracts on it but it, it is dedicated meaning that it's one blockchain for one app and there are there are some of these chains like what we're doing for injective or polygon or some of these folks where it's a general purpose chain and there are multiple apps there but uh yeah privacy is like one option but but you can you can even have public blockchains too but totally agree uh, and I think that uh, the dirty secret is that we're, the industry isn't really quite ready for it because there just isn't enough block space to support even the chains that we have running right now. Sure. We have something like 20, 20 of these extremely high throughput uh, chains, essentially like Solana yeah. scale chains, that, uh, that need that much block space to correspond to them. And that's not really going to be available until closer to like July when some of these uh, DA solutions go mainnet, like EigenDA, Celestia, and so forth.
0: You were at consensus. Who are you looking to to meet? Were you looking to meet more like people in our industry? Or are you trying to meet folks who can who can use Eclipse and create their own new blockchains or experiment with it and things like that?
1: So that was mostly meeting existing customers. I'm really excited about this company called React. It was recently rebranded Daylight. And these guys basically stick a meter into your house. So it tracks all your electricity consumption. And they'll track your solar panel, your thermostat, your if you have a battery installed in your home. The idea initially started with just batteries, but now it's become more. What's broad. it called? Daylight. All this data. What's that? Daylight. Uh, daylight. Yeah. Uh, or uh, I think if you search React Network, that's what it's called right now. But they're going to do a rebrand pretty soon.
0: Okay. Cool.
1: So uh, yeah, these guys track all your data. Ultimately, it'll all be put on chain, whether that's encrypted or non encrypted. And there's just so many things you can do with that, whether it's you can optimize the user's power consumption, or like, like, for example, maybe you want your house to be cool by 6 p.m. or something, but uh, you're you've been having your thermostat run all day. Then they can optimize that and turn off the thermostat in the middle of the day, then turn it back on. They can do all kinds of fancy things once they have all that data. They can figure out when you should charge your battery, when you should sell back to the market. So, and I have a power background. When I was a quantitative at Citadel, I mostly did power and natural gas. So I just think that the idea is really interesting. So it's an example of a decentralized physical infrastructure network. Another project that we met over there was Wave, W A E V, oh, yeah. and it's kind of like yeah on-chain data tracking for uh, like regulatory compliance and other reasons. So yeah, that's another project that we're really excited to have on Eclipse.
0: Are you finding any constraints with the blockchains of today? Do you think people will keep will keep launching new blockchains?
1: I think that for these types of applications in particular, definitely yes. Like Wave, it takes hours for them to upload all of their data on chain. Oh, uh, but when they have a dedicated blockchain where they can batch some of the operations or kind of conserve block space in some or compress block space in some clever ways, then it becomes much more tractable.
0: Why are they so, putting yeah, their data on chain?
1: Yeah, they're putting like all, every time you submit a form, every time you really do anything online, that's going to be available on chain for. Let's say there's another, um, like another website wants to request access to that data, then this way they can enforce that you actually signed off on that website, having access to it, and then it'll facilitate that data sharing.
0: I, I love that concept. And we've been talking about that for so long. What's the, what's the watershed moment for something like that? How do we force, because there's like a little bit of friction there, right? How do we force new businesses to use a company like Wave and then we have enough, like you're using it enough places? or it actually takes over I would love to that's what yeah, I
1: think it's partly about bootstrapping the supply side of the marketplace first so you just I mean right now businesses already do some amount of data sharing okay. so first replace their existing solution without any additional like GDPR related features where you ask users to share their data or whatever just ignore that for now uh, and then on the once you have all this it's like huge like warehouse of data then you can start incorporating users and maybe even letting them monetize their own data and getting compensation for sharing their data.
0: So unique and so interesting. It's how did you how did you learn that our industry needed all of this when you were working at Citadel?
1: Uh, so but when I was at Citadel, I wa- definitely was not thinking about it because I was actually <laughs> I think I had a really naive view toward uh, crypto, which was just that there were going to be a lot of chains and they all needed to be EVM compatible. And and EVM compatibility, if the audience doesn't know, this just means the blockchain needs to be able to support Ethereum smart contracts, Ethereum wallets. But what I come to realize is that EVM compatibility, such as what Binance Smart Chain did or Polygon POS, isn't actually like a reason for people to deploy to a chain. It's just a go-to-market tactic. Mm. And the quality of applications on these EVM chains has gone down so much. On Ethereum, you still have some unique stuff. But a lot of these other chains just have forks of other EVM projects. And I think that's what's kept, like, for example, the Solana community, the average quality of project is actually pretty good. Or if you look at what was going on in Terra, because there's that barrier of entry to use Cosm, Wasm, and Rust, the average Terra project was also good. Even though these blockchains, obviously, you know, they've, they've had their ups and downs as from a price perspective and also from like a TBL and user activity perspective. I'm just saying that the types of apps in terms of uniqueness and just the raw quality of the app is probably higher than your average app on Ethereum.
0: That's a really interesting concept. So you're seeing that the more the, the higher the barrier of the entry, then sometimes the better the quality of the app. I mean, you look at the Apple App Store as one example. That if you want to have an app in the Apple App Store, you, there's a certain like standard of excellence that you'd have to have there, and that's why you don't have that. But at the same time, there's like pirated you know app stores. If you back in the day when you'd put them on your phone. And you download some of those apps, they were like kind of janky and crappy. And I and I have noticed that since EVM compatibility, aka like cross-chain ability, aka everyone is like chain agnostic all of a sudden, it's kind of funny. But then what's the point? That's why I keep asking, like, what's the point of launching these new chains? It's kind of funny that at one point, all we did was focus on for so many years from like, 2014 onward, we just focused on having new blockchains that were so different. And then now all of a sudden we want to connect all the chains back together.
1: Yeah, it's such a good <laughs> point. And it's also like, why are these people going multi-chain? It's just because it's the naive advice that someone will give you. And, but ultimately what apps should be focusing on is, one, increasing the user experience, like making a better quality app, and two, increasing the number of unique users that, they have, that have access to their chain. And if you're looking at like the fiftieth L one out there, <laughs> it's unlikely you're actually accessing new users by deploying there, uh, and also users don't come for free. You're gonna have to actively invest in like the go to market, unless yes. you're offering something unique. Uh, and and then I mean the whole idea of like build something and they will come is not as common as well uh, as these developers are hoping. Yeah,
0: no, you're totally right. And I, I don't want to out for all the entrepreneurs out there. I want them. I want everyone, myself included. I want us to hear this that there was a decade of like the macro cheap money. But what that did was create for, for us is like the constant free user. So any of our apps and our crypto applications, as long as it was cool and we built it and it was fun and it was crypto, users were there ready to use it. And it was cheap acquisition for new. That's why some of our, our, our companies acquired so many users so quickly and they got into crazy valuations because it was cheap and easy. But now it's different. And now if you're not building something that's in its category, for example, you're you're an in infrastructure and services, very unique category. You're actually what our fund invests in specifically. But if you're building out there like a retail application, you need to be building something that's good for the mass user out there now. The time that we build for the crypto user, it's over. We need to build out for everyone else because we need to prove our own utility.
1: Yeah. Plus all those users that were just coming there for the hack or just because they're, they're just being handed money are essentially mercenary. Like the moment that money stops, unless you built a good app, they're going to leave anyway. So it's like, that's really good for like pumping your metrics sure, and convincing yeah. someone to ask for a crazy valuation. But the moment you're on the public market and then your users leave, then uh, I, I think a lot of that goes away.
0: That's like uh, token investor loyalty. How do you gauge that?
1: Yeah, 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 really true. And, and then I think that a lot of people were like kind of fallaciously tricking themselves into thinking that there's actual community just because their token price went up and their community loved them. Uh, but that, that doesn't actually... I mean, if you have like a borrow-lend protocol or something, I don't want to like... I mean, I'm sure there are borrow-lend protocols that have this. But my point is that in traditional financial infrastructure, like loans or something, there's no loan community. There's Enough. a little bit of a commodities community, but not really. Uh, like usually financial instruments don't have communities behind them just because the price of the financial instrument went up. Uh, so it's like a unique thing to crypto... And I, I don't think that that's, I think a lot of it is because it's driven by like retail speculation. But I, I don't think that that's a sustainable source of community. A sustainable source of community is like, if you look at these consumer apps, like games. Games can have community because people do it as a hobby. They'll like go home, they'll hop on with their friends. They know the people they're playing with, or, or even they don't, but they'll stream and they have, like there's, there's just a lot of community elements to it. The same thing doesn't typically apply to like a borrow-lend protocol. And therefore you need to design your app a little bit differently and your ways of measuring community should should like be different consequently.
0: You 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 it's brilliant that you said that because at along the way crypto became this incentive layer and it, it was decided that all applications need tokens and incentives and that's how we're going to build community with financial incentives. But that's that's not the way community should be built around hobbies and then maybe crypto can be used as what like a complementary add-on to these communities?
1: Yeah, it could also be used as like a uh, like network effects bootstrapping tool. I think that's a really valid use, and I, I know that like crypto people hate this, but no, we have to the talk about it. Crypto is like, yeah, you give something to someone that's worth something to them, but it costs you nothing to give it to them, and that asymmetry, at least initially, it's worth nothing to you, and then eventually, like, it needs to actually grow into that value. But I think that that's partly like the beauty of it that we should lean into. But it's just like you can't be. It's like back in the beginning of Uber. At, I remember Uber rides were like a dollar a ride or something like that. Uh, it was just crazy. I could, like, I was using Uber everywhere. And that was like the, to me, that was like peak VC subsidized days. And now Uber rides are like super, to get like across the street, it cost me 20, 30 bucks or something. But I, I think if that that's like the kind of thing that these other apps that were using tokens to bootstrap network effects need to realize that they have to grow into. They have to grow into like Uber today.
0: I never understood how, like, I was a, like you said when Uber I grew up in New York City and and so in 2000 maybe it was like it was like over 10 years ago 2011 2010 I was like using Uber when it was just it was all only black cars and it was cuz my friend from high school was ended up becoming one of the first New York employees and he's like hey you got to use this and and it was amazing because it was like I had I was able to have a black SUV sitting outside of like a restaurant while I ate for 6 hours okay with, a, with a, a chauffeur driver for like $10 an hour. And I was like, this is, I don't it know. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, like this is yeah. the future. I don't know how they, they're doing this. That this, this uh, I don't know how this Travis guy is doing this thing, but God bless him for like seven years, he bootstrapped my transportation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then it's like you drive to your destination and you can order a coffee to be delivered the moment you get there. It's like, imagine the level of wealth that you'd have to be at to have this just like 30, 40 years ago. And now it's just like accessible to everyone. It is pretty remarkable.
0: It sounds like you, one of the things you learned too is that everything is just taking, it takes, it's going to take a little bit more time to get where we need to be than what we thought.
1: I, I think there's also just like a, a mismatch between, like, I mean, there, there's a lot of great engineers in this industry. And I, I think there's also some guys on the economic side, but it's kind of rare that you see, like someone it's kind of like a quant that that can be a hybrid between those two, because as a result you end up with these weird constructions. Or I actually think a a filecoin is really cool, and I think that there's there's arguments that that it is sustainable. But uh, but like a naive argument is like oh so, like someone like the other day was telling me oh well they feel like uh, as a filecoin user they're paying less, and the guy who's providing the storage for filecoin sure. is making more, so it's a win. And then like it's it's kind of silly because it's like something like obviously the yield must be coming into the system somewhere and right now the way it comes in is that we have people speculating on the price of the filecoin token and that's why the the token's worth more so when filecoin compensates the person providing storage they're able to basically like rely on that speculation and and give it as compensation to someone else but the moment that yield stops entering the system and it will eventually then you need other revenue sources and, and filecoin actually has ways of growing into they do. that but uh, yeah, I'm just giving it as like an example of like if you just left it at that like simple analysis, then if you put thousand dollars in for storage and you're getting five thousand dollars of storage out, obviously there's a mismatch there. And like crypto people seem to think that that's not an issue. It's
0: one of the best. I think one of the best projects in the space. We had like two. We had the two different founders on the show from Protocol Lab. And the cool thing about Filecoin is it's it's an actual invention that's taken from the Byzantine generals problem. Created, you know, they they theorized about IPFS for many years, applied a lot of t- different technologies, used crypto as this incentive layer, and then figured out a way to do it. And they fully, like you said, understand that this is a long wait. But the cool thing about their specu- their speculators, their speculators. The cool thing about their speculators is that they are speculating on the value of the future network that they can still use and play with today. And I think that's kind of fair because it's a really cool network, and when you understand how it all works and that you can actually use it now, a lot of people are going are speculating on the on the future value, which is kind of what stocks are in a way too, right?
1: Yeah, that's what it's supposed to be used for. That's a good point. Yeah,
0: but the rest of it is just crap. A lot of it is. It's hard, but we're going through. We're going to go through a renaissance, I think, over the next year or two because the barrier of entry in our space is not, and to like what you said, the barrier of entry is a lot harder now. Um, people to raise money is harder now. To to convince yourselves and your family to that you're going to leave your job and start a, a Bitcoin or crypto company is a lot harder now. To, to grow your company and get users is a lot harder now. You see it at, at these conferences. It's, it's just a lot different. And so maybe out of that we'll start to get these like really, really, really good applications. And we're starting to see like you said, on the Solana chain, you're seeing really good applications and and stuff like that. So so you're giving me optimism for the for the years to come.
1: Oh thank you. Good to hear that. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, people will be a little bit more thoughtful about whether what they're building is actually really unique too. But I, I think that's the last part that I think multi-chain really was a huge distraction for, which is uh people weren't thinking about like whether they're actually building something new or something zero to one. And instead they're like, let's just take this protocol and we're building it for Aptos or we're building this protocol for Solana. And that's a really bad way of building applications or building things that that last, especially since like when you're building like X for Solana and you just rip it from Ethereum, the Solana blockchain is so much, it has so much higher throughput and there's things that you can do on there that you straight up can't do on Ethereum. So why don't you do more of those things rather than just forking an AMM Which was designed with the constraints of Ethereum in mind.
0: If you were a company or like a blockchain that launched on the premise of just connect us to as many chains as possible and offer some really cool scaling solutions, and users will come, like, and if they're in that space now and they don't have any real applications, like, what advice would you give them?
1: I'd honestly, I think that a lot, I mean, for these companies that maybe like raised a too high of a valuation and they can't grow into it, there's, there's only a few options, but. If, if you're really early on and, uh, and a lot of the capital is left, I honestly think maybe just return the capital because that, that's kind of the situation I was in with the Terra EVM where the assumptions of what I was building were just no longer true or I no longer had conviction in them. And you're better off just not going through with the round or, or not continuing and then taking a step back and thinking about what is actually compelling to you. You can, you can raise again, uh, you're probably going to want to change the cap table too. Because maybe those old investors that you had, had a different thesis on what the future of crypto scaling looks like.
0: At the same time, being, um, being upfront and, and public about like your history and your career, is, uh, it seems like when from my own personal history and, and yours too, it seems like the more, the more integrity you have to the community that you work in, the, the more uh, uh, respectful they'll be back to you. So that's always a good thing too.
1: Yeah, I think you can also prevent other people from making the same pitfalls. If you announce really publicly, you're like, look, like, this thing didn't work out. Then I think people, if someone else tries to do the same thing in the future, they're going to see that evidence in history. And hopefully they learn from it and understand why. And maybe they could take a totally different approach. But at least they know that you went down that same path too.
0: Neil, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Neil Samani from Eclipse. We'll have, I'll have all your information in the show notes, but very enlightening conversation Very eye-opening at the same time. Thanks for for taking the time today.
1: Thanks, Charlie.
0: I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup. And he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates and following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations. Financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs. They're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges that we all are going to face, and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are going to love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W A C H S M A N.com. That's W A C H S M A N.com. We're on this like great, great subject right now, talking about crypto platforms, development, Bitcoin scaling. We've been on this theme. A lot of what gets talked about in the crypto space or what reaches the, the ears of the mainstream audience is the final end product. But a lot of this cool technology actually is happening behind the scenes without understanding. What is happening behind the scenes? It's really hard to understand how these things, you know, will will come together. So I'm excited to introduce my guest today, Leo Leonard Delocher. I definitely screwed it up again. I'm so sorry, but Leo, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Charlie.
0: <laughs> You're a, a graduate of the Berlin Institute of Technology and a co-founder of Peak, P-E-A-Q, and a very unique company. You guys are looking at crypto platforms and scaling in a very different way. Very, very different. You're working on what you call transforming the Internet of things into the economy of things by giving vehicles, machines, robots, devices, somewhat of a sovereign identity, access and payment capabilities. So they can do services and have like an economy between them. And we're already seeing that. Teslas and all our new refrigerator, a lot of these new washing machines come built in with chips and having these technologies to be able to to, to talk to each other. And for me, I look at efficiency. I want all of everything in my house, refrigerator, dryer, anything, pool heater, whatever, to be just under this like hyper, hyper efficient kind of like mechanism. And you're trying to build this out using these decentralized physical networks, it deepens. You think they're going to change the the blockchain landscape from everything that we know. How is this different from layer ones? I guess, take me from the top.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now you summarized it super well. And what peak essentially is, is a layer one for what you just said, deepens, decentralized physical infrastructure networks. This is a new term in, in Web3, which just emerged recently. Uh, Misari coined it actually, oh. and it's kind of uniting a lot of the efforts that have been going on for a long time. So there have been many efforts in terms of creating decentralized networks. So incentivizing individuals, for example, to deploy hotspots at their home. Helium is an example who did that, or to offer storage in order to to store files and so on. Filecoin is an example of that. So there's been a lot of efforts going on already. And we've been looking at that space starting in 2017, where we had our inception. We did a lot of work with many big enterprises. Audi called us up one day in the morning and basically said, Hey, we have a massive problem. Our customers don't really have enough charging infrastructure. So one of their managers had that brilliant idea of saying, Hey, what if all the home charging stations could be actually made available to the public? And that's another example of Deepens, where People can use their private charging stations at home, deploy them, and make them available to their communities. So it's really essentially incentivizing individuals and enabling individuals to share the resources they have. And we focus on the IoT resources, like anything that can transmit data, that can generate or sell energy, that can store files, that can record video this video data can be shared with people and sold. And Peak is really a layer one network designed for that space.
0: A lot of people have been trying to do this for a very long time. It's definitely novel and unique. And it's almost like the holy grail of being able to do this. I, I remember going back almost like seven, eight years now, when after Ethereum was first conceptualized, people were talking about doing the internet of things, of sharing electricity and solar power, yeah. being able to share... The, the helium mesh network and do like decentralized cell phone networks, but what has been the barrier to entry? Like, why have none of them? Although, like you saw, helium did take off, and it helped that people were were home a lot during during COVID lockdowns. Why hasn't this really taken off yet?
2: Absolutely, it's it's been a long journey. Also for us, we've done a lot of R and D. We work with many big firms, and it's taken until now to really get its own name to become its own thing in Web3, for many years, we first had to get the infrastructure scalability right, right? Like on Ethereum, you couldn't build these things. Back in 2017, we looked at working with IOTA because it it promised to solve a lot of the issues, but it didn't at that time, right? The technology mm. wasn't ready. So until 2021, I'd say, we didn't have the infrastructure, the blockchain infrastructure tech to actually build such a layer one and to to really make those use cases come alive. Now this is solved, like we have incredible frameworks. We, for example, built with the substrate framework that's used to build the the Polkadot ecosystem. So that really provides us with the infrastructure tech on the blockchain level that's required to build such a layer one with very low fees, high throughput and so on. And on the other hand, I think incentives and economics haven't been figured out really yet. You mentioned Helium as an example. It's it's a fantastic example of really creating a massive network of the supply side, but there hasn't been really much demand yet for using the Helium LoRaWAN network. So why not? because the, the IoT connectivity through LoRaWAN is not used on massive scale yet. So cities like the idea was okay, we're gonna deploy those net this network everywhere, and then cities gonna use this LoRaWAN IoT connectivity and and, and companies. But It's not that much used yet. It it might scale up. Helium now switched also to focus more on 5G, but it hasn't. It hasn't been used so far as promised. So there's a massive supply side. The model works. You can bootstrap those networks. You can build up the supply side, but the demand in Helium's case wasn't there yet.
0: It wasn't there yet, and a lot of this stuff is still experimental. But going back to the electric cars and that network example, I think that's one of the best ones. I just read an article somewhere that one of the reasons that Elon Musk actually opened up like the the supercharger network to the whole US was because there was pressure there that electric cars weren't going to continue to grow in the US if it was seen that Tesla had a monopoly on almost all the superchargers in the whole country. And so there was almost like government pressure to open that up. And I understand why. So, so your your solution is like a decentralized version. It's like most people are charging; they're not going to superchargers. They're charging at their home or their office. So, why not be able to to share those resources?
2: Correct, correct. And this is the charging use case is one of the use cases, and it's actually the first in use case that was built on the peak network because, really, Audi as a massive automotive firm kind of initiated that and said, "Hey, we we need to solve that problem that." End users have 10 to 15 different accounts, charging cards. They, If they have a Tesla, they can t- charge at the Tesla superchargers, but yes. not everywhere else, right?
0: Yeah, and exactly.
2: there's so many home charging stations that are not available to the public. And if you think about, like, if you give all of those charging stations an identity on an open blockchain network, and then anyone can see them and reserve them and pay for them peer-to-peer, that really can... Massively scale the charging infrastructure, and it can solve this massive fragmentation that we have today right right now it's super fragmented not only that
0: you're looking at it from a very like altruistic perspective, but I'm looking at it from like a, a capitalism perspective, and the way I look at it is that you have this huge multifamily property boom going on right now there you have most people who are property real estate investors own you know they don't own Really a lot of single family rentals. They own like these buildings or apartment buildings or homes where you can have multiple families live in them. And we're seeing the growth of these all over the country. And these are owned by, yeah, you have private equity and stuff, but they're owned by like smaller uh, investors, people who are diversifying their assets. There's no incentive for me as like an Airbnb operator, you know, or someone who owns a multiple, a multiple family unit building to build superchargers because how many of my guests are going to pay extra to use it? However, if I had them there, because it's now part of a network that can give me an extra income stream, I think that's very promising.
2: 100%. And if you scale that model to different use cases, right, you have the charging infrastructure, you can utilize your property wherever you have it. You can build charging stations and make money by any car that passes by that wants to charge there. Or you use the roofs of the houses you own and install 5G hotspots, because traditionally you you have to be a big telco company that builds a massive five g network, but now it's going to be flipped around and deepens like those decentralized physical infrastructure networks enable anyone, any property owner to install 5 g hotspots on their property and provide connectivity to the people to the community around so you're you're spot on saying that this is an incredible opportunity to decentralize how how money is being made right like Anyone can start making money more on the side and it's less concentrated in the hands of a few big companies and individuals, investors, or if you own your private property, can start making money. And we like to call this democratizing the age of automation.
0: I love that. I love it, democratizing the age of automation. Do you see like this world of multiple blockchains that people are still launching is going to exist in the future? Or do you think that it'll be more of like, normal people businesses and companies and, and industry will interact with this kind of like decentralized middleware that'll then filter into whatever blockchains that it, it wants to use on its own
2: yeah like i do i do think that the multi-chain future will will exist and i think many many industries will be transformed in terms of many companies that traditionally exist will start that will not exist any longer right they, they will or they will have to transform a lot in order to continue to exist and in terms of many different networks being launched like on an on a interoperability level i see incredible progress in terms of all those different networks really being able to talk to each other being able to exchange information and also tokens and value so that is being built a, a real web 3 which is interconnected and many business models are being completely flipped around. So I do believe, for example, telco and energy, as we talked about it now, like I think the energy grids of the future are going to be highly decentralized, much more in the hands of of individuals and people who produce energy, store it, and also sell it. So I think, yeah, many businesses that we know as of today in, in that, for example, field of infrastructure, are going to be disrupted and transformed and Web3 is, is yeah enabling yeah. that.
0: You guys just launched something called peak control, which allows right. users and owners of the Raspberry Pi computer, which is like a very small computer, half, you know, it's a tiny one to half the size of my cell phone. It allows owners to connect to your network and get rewarded for simulating how machines such as electric vehicles and drones will interact with it. Why are you paying people for simulating data?
2: that's a good one and we do this in order to really enable people to start experimenting so this is happening on a on a canary network of ours so it's not happening on the on the main network that will be launched later this year so this is really there in order to give people a feeling of how the economy of things is working and and how it functions and we're testing basically people to Like we're testing how the, the network behaves, how people interact with it. That's and smart. we're using Raspberry Pis because it's basically an IoT middle layer. You can connect any sensor, any charging station, any car to the, to the internet, to the peak network using a Raspberry Pi. So it's basically one IoT middleware with which you enable all the IoT developers out there to prototype and test deep in use cases very quickly. That's why we, we launched the initiative to really enable everyone to get started super quickly and try things out. How many people are connected? So right now there are, I think, four to 500 Raspberry Pis connected.
0: Can you almost like do a decentralized mechanical Turk in a way? Decentralized mechanical Turk. Where it's like using, if you have, it's not just about sharing resources, but if you have hundreds of thousands of Raspberry Pis connected, And they're acting as like decentralized oracles, and they're bringing in data. You can build into your network a mechanism to like tell if any outlier data is lying or being dishonest. You could like ask simple questions like "What's the weather where you are?" and compare it with the actual weather sources. But then you can use it to like have a decentralized incoming data oracles from the
2: real world. Hundred percent. This is like one of the deepness. Oh, like sens- sensor networks is a big part yeah, of yeah sensor thing. networks. So they're yeah. exactly there. Weather sensor networks being built recently. Uh, just today we announced how a camera sensor network joined our network. So they are having smartphone cameras, and the smartphone cameras are basically the sensors monitoring traffic, uh, creating oh, real so cool. time map. Absolutely, yeah, it's 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 incredible. Like you can get data on anything, anywhere, air quality weather data, traffic data. It's crazy. Like the this deepened space that's emerging, the real world impact you can have and crowdsource data and reward individuals to contribute with sensors they install at home or in their cars. Yeah, it's crazy what's happening now.
0: We have this problem here in Florida. It's a bacterial problem called red tide is the shorthand for it. But what happens is when when it rains a lot or there's like, sewage dumpings or there's like situations where there's a lot of fertilizer or just chemicals in the ground it's it's not man-made it's it's a natural reoccurring thing in the water like almost like a wildfire but it gets exasperated by by man a lot by us putting you know having like water runoff from our lawns into the into the oceans and things and in florida maybe like once or twice a year we get this really bad they're very regional and almost very local but you get these outbreaks, and like all the water will turn red, and you'll see like millions of fish just layering on top of the of the water, and it's sad and it's dead, and everything dies in the water. One of the ways that to combat it is to find the outbreaks when they're small, and then yeah. the local marine laboratories that we have here that are like public private funded, they know how to stop it. But when it gets too big, they can't. When they turn yeah. into fish kills, you can't. I wonder if there was some like sensory mechanism that we could develop and then the way to incentivize people that own properties on the water to yeah. put them in their homes, pay them some sort of like incentive, but it doesn't even have to be like a monetary incentive. It could be like a discount on your tax bill or something like Absolutely.
2: that. Absolutely. That's, that's a fantastic, that's a perfect in use case, really. It's a, you need a sensor, a device that can recognize when this is happening and then, like you said, you incentivize people, you give them a token reward, and that token reward they can use to, like you said, reduce taxes or any other benefit, really. But that's a perfect I'm going to <laughs> work on this. I'm going to work on this. I know
0: this. I'm very close with the city, and then I just got to get with the aquarium marine laboratory and ask them how they're working on the sensor. Because right now, the way it works is that my friend Jay called me the other day, and he offered me, he's like, hey, we need more people just going out into the water and on the beaches testing. Just go, mm. I'm like it's a it's a re, it's like a it's an actual work. Someone has to go out there and do and like how are we going to stop these outbreaks if we're relying on like eight day old data, hoping yeah. on someone did it the right way? No, we need
2: sensor, yeah. real time sensor network. Absolutely.
0: Leo, thank you so much for for coming on the show today and giving me my next business idea.
2: Hundred uh, percent, super happy and, <laughs> and super happy to help Charlie. Like uh please please let us know and we're happy to support with everything on the on the deepen level.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll get in touch. It's really awesome. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Cool. <laughs> We're on this theme of crypto platforms developing on top of of Bitcoin, kind of connecting all of these blockchains back together because it seems like over the last year or so, there's just been this push to, to figure out how to allow for liquidity to jump from one blockchain to another without having like losing decentralization you know especially when some blockchains are very are very busy like right now there's been a huge amount of activity on the bitcoin blockchain and it's been reviving a lot of talks that we had many years ago on back on bitcoin scaling because as much as bitcoin has grown and scaled into you know you have lightning and we have side chains and drive chains today we're going to be talking to to my guest Paul Storts Paul you're the co-founder and CEO of Layer 2 Labs you're a well-known Bitcoin researcher and developer. You've been working on and proposed this concept of the, the the Bitcoin drive chain on a side chain in 2015, but it was very different times because right now you have these uh, ordinals and different type of activities that are being built on top of the Bitcoin main chain, but we should be figuring out how to scale in, in different ways so we don't see high congestion and high fees anymore. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. You were also an economist at Block and a director of research at Tyrion. But what's interesting is that when you proposed drive chains in 2015, and I just want to read like the first few words you wrote, with sidechains, altcoins are obsolete. Bitcoin smart contracts are possible. Bitcoin Core and Bitcoin XT can coexist. And all hard forks can become soft forks. Cool upgrades to Bitcoin are on the way. Now, this was eight years ago.
3: Yeah, that last last sentence kind of... uh... The rest of it was spot on. Well, what was you know? going on in
0: 2015?
3: Pick give a Yeah,
0: I've got a lot of yeah.
3: stories. <laughs> so what happened was there was uh you know, there was the block size dispute, and that was going worse and worse. It started like a long time ago, and it just got worse and worse every year. And in twenty fifteen, it seemed like it couldn't get any worse, although of course it would go on to get much worse after that. But in twenty fifteen, we organized these conferences called Scaling Bitcoin, which was supposed to be like Everyone meeting and we'll talk this out. We'll figure this out. Because Mike, Mike Kern had proposed Bitcoin XT along with Gavin Andreessen, which was a hard fork increasing the block size, the infamous block size.
0: Bitcoin was at the time, and there, there, this, is, this story has been covered a lot, not only on the show, there's a great book. I, I think it's by Jonathan Beer from BitMEX. And he wrote this book called like The Block Size War. I didn't read it, but I heard it. Th- yeah, it covers,
3: yeah. I also didn't. I skimmed it, but I was like, "Well, we lived is, it." I'm glad. I don't exists. want to relive <laughs> it. <anything. laughs> I know. I live, yeah, I. You know, I, I. I do worry that if I read it, I'll be in the uh, the awkward position of having to like publish some <laughs> some kind of like memo or something like you no, know, because I my experience is also very different than what uh, If people show up later. They kind of are fed like a very simplified story, um, and I don't. You know, it doesn't match what I lived through. <laughs>
0: Has since then has Bitcoin scaled to where you would like to to see it scale? Well, I think scalability
3: is sometimes it's often underemphasized. Like it's very important, but it, it should have even more importance. Uh, I think partly this is because anyone who brought up scalability was seen as a, a large blocker, and so they're just immediately, you know. Uh, painted or they're immediately disparaged because the large blocker side was so was so wrong for so for such a long time and they tried so hard to win and then they lost they're completely humiliated and you know really to this day Um, so people want to avoid even going in that direction. It's just too awkward a topic, but people talk about it as though there's like privacy, scalability. So at Scaling Three in Milan, Scaling Bitcoin Three, the third conference, they had like they were like the days were like broken into categories, and like there was like fungibility was like the first half of day one, and then there was like scalability was just like one bullet point among many things like interoperability, sure, like etc. So I think that's kind of a mistake. I mean, that's fine enough to have the bullet points, but. The scalability is key because of the network effects of money. So like when you go to Japan, you can only spend yen. You can't spend even the U.S. dollar, you know, would have a tough time. And then God forbid you take yen to like Great Britain or something. Like it doesn't matter how much yen you pull out of a giant briefcase. Yeah. People are going to be really confused and they will not take it. It will lose all of its persuasive force. Whereas if you took, you know, British pounds, you took hundreds of thousands of British pounds and you said, you know, I need to buy the shirt off your back or something you'd get you would persuade all kinds of people to do all kinds of crazy things money has that magical persuasive uh, power but only the money that the people recognize socially in their little uh, group so the 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 smaller each you know each place doesn't really contain uh, each currency area doesn't really contain a rival cryptocurrency. It's uh, excuse me, a rival currency of any kind. It's Our industry is in like a kind of temporary space where we have many of these for a wide variety of reasons that are just like people scamming. Why? Just innovation, uh, fringe innovation. It's right?
0: hard for people to realize that there was a time where we just had one blockchain. There was a time yeah. where you would say like, yeah, we're going to do it on the blockchain and no one would ever say which one. It was just always on the Bitcoin blockchain. But no one was really talking about this term of smart contracts and doing other things, the scaling conversations at the time was mostly around just getting more transactions for money. It was just about transactions of money. It wasn't like you new know, data, smart contracts of running an insurance company on a Torrid complete system here. That's true, and uh, I kind of um, I wonder if, uh, if that's that has evolved in a very interesting
3: way. Uh, I mean, it's worth pointing out that back in twenty fifteen, the uh, the whole the whole reason why we had the scaling Bitcoin conferences was to avoid splitting the community in two. Because, in fact, at the time, most people believed that that would just kill Bitcoin. <laughs> so that's like kind of bizarre. Which is that it, it later split into two, and basically, very almost nothing happened. And then we had like Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Diamond, all this other stuff. Um, yeah, uh, that's just very reality played out a little differently. Um, but.
0: There's like a website you can go to like hardfork.info and you can see all the forks of Bitcoin. And you could paste in an old Bitcoin address and see if you have any coins that are owed to you based on that. But right. now now the now the conversation's changed. I mean, even the even this podcast and you know, during that those fateful days when the community did split, I would I would argue that Vitalik starting another blockchain Ethereum and then and then that gave definitely a good amount of wind in the sails of the folks that wanted to to fork bitcoin into their own because i said oh if they can do it with ethereum we can do it with with this one except we'll just call it bitcoin something else but now indeed yeah now that conversation has changed so now like we there was all these splits but now everyone i'm looking at vc pitch decks all the time and all i'm seeing is like companies and blockchains and projects
3: yeah v- very rarely will it be like on the bitcoin blockchain
0: Well, they want to be on the Bitcoin blockchain, but or they want to connect to the Bitcoin blockchain, or connect Polygon to Bitcoin. It's like there's this huge renaissance of like bringing Bitcoin back into the circle of all the other blockchains. Like, what's going on? I think all those
3: things are related. Actually, there was like a time when, again, like at the beginning, everyone thought there will only be one coin that wins. Anyone who did anything else was disparaged. So, like, if they do Feathercoin or something, it was all seen as a joke. So um, so that was the beginning. And then after, really after the scaling conference, one, two, and three, in, in the year 2016, people kind of lost hope that Bitcoin would resolve its dispute. And that's when Ethereum kind of broke in a little bit. And then uh, I think it's, it's all, this is all like related. It was like, because the dispute didn't, wasn't resolved quickly enough, Ethereum broke in and then it's because after Ethereum broke in, there was kind of like a sour grapes type of thing where it was kind of like, well, we never wanted uh, smart contracts anyway, you know, because like now we can't have them. So we were like, well, <laughs> we never wanted those anyway. And we, you know, screw larger blocks and then the, the block size war. And then the, the, the fork in 2017 with the large blockers losing the battle for Bitcoin or whatever you want to call it, that made everyone extra complacent in the Bitcoin world. So the Bitcoin world was just like, we will just do nothing. We will, In fact, we will resist all change. Change is bad. Change is like people trying to corrupt the protocol. And that led to the proliferation of all this other stuff. And that those people had more freedom since they didn't have to go through the crazy bureaucracy of uh, Bitcoin Core. They invented a bunch of stuff that 99% of it was terrible, but some of it is decent. And then I think over time, those people have slowly learned that there actually is no future. There really will only be one winning coin. Like what I was saying before, network Yeah. and that if you invent something it'll be open source or even if it's not open source someone will eventually reverse engineer it you know i mean it's a community of people learning from each other so whatever's invented will be like bolted on it'll just be it'll be all the technology will be what was called blockchain agnostic it'll just be like whatever so then so now i think people are sort of returning to the idea that stuff should be attached to one the one winning currency which would be bitcoin i think it's also the case that the complacency after 2017 has actually led us nowhere and people are slowly realizing that it's been 6 years and 2017 december we got to whatever 20,000 a coin yeah. in terms of the price in terms of like the attention in terms of like all this stuff we um, so i think we've actually not been going anywhere and over time it's installed the wrong uh, you know the wrong podcasts the wrong speakers the wrong conferences have have risen to the top uh, temporarily and people are getting tired of it and they they're actually getting getting bored with with the 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 spiel that we should just do nothing
0: the good thing is that market forces kind of like are making it happen at the time the bitcoin was like going through this two year bear market and like solving this seemingly political problem coming up into this having that was happening i think a year later or something was seemed like the solution that needed to bring in the next bull market so people were more interested in like fast scaling but at the same time when i say fast scaling you know smart scaling is better than fast scaling fast scaling is better than slow scaling because that's what happened we got complacent as i and i was one of those people that i remember saying like Well, we got SegWit and Lightning and everything. We'll build on top of that. And all these other blockchains will just be the experiments. But we're seeing these experiments be successful. As much as we see a lot of failures and scams and broken chains and things like that, there are some really unique and cool concepts out there that would be cool to connect into Bitcoin. And I think a lot of people want to do that. So That's why we're seeing that again. And market forces almost are saying that if there is some sort of like huge breakthrough, in a decentralized way, that could bring about the next huge crypto spring.
3: Well, that's what I hope. But the was. question
0: I have for you is, yeah, right? <laughs> but the question I have for you is like, drive chains, yes. right? You, you, when you proposed it, you almost were doing it in a way that didn't require any changes from Bitcoin's, Bitcoin software itself. Therefore, everything can be backward compatible, right? Like, All the propositions that we're seeing now, they're all based around like Bitcoin not doing any changes.
3: Well, yeah. Now um, it's interesting. There are like, uh, there are this, what were called hard and soft changes back in the day. And that was renamed to the hard and soft fork type of upgrade. Then hard fork came to describe something else. So the terminology has gotten uh, horrible, but um, the, The idea, uh, like, there there was a time when it was, like, the only change you could propose was a soft fork upgrade. And then uh, it was discovered that even the soft fork is actually very powerful. And, in fact, Segwit was used. Segwit was a soft fork that was uh, a block size increase. So this was part of the problem of, you know, if we go back to scaling too.
0: It was all political. People didn't understand
3: how is it that we can't do a, a block size increase that's a hard fork, but, you know. Some, you know, essentially Peter Wilde Blockstream. This is how it was framed, you know, incorrectly, but that's just how it was perceived. People just thought, well, Blockstream yeah. somehow, with the technological magic, they can do a block size increase to 2.3 megabytes with SegWit, but, but the miners cannot do Bitcoin Classic one megabyte, two megabytes. So there was all this, uh, you know, there was all this confusion and kind of
0: mistrust. it came out to a political thing. You had this huge civil war, which you could argue that. Almost every country, like if you look at America or like these, you know, new countries or new technologies or new industries, like they almost have to go through. And we, you know, we're looking back and we're sad. You and I look back at those times in a sad way because we went through it and we lost friends and, you know, relationships were broken apart and businesses and things like that. But the rest of the world looks at that almost like it's good that Bitcoin went through it because it brought all of the, brought everything up all the dust and all everything on the, on the bottom of the, of the ocean. It brought it all up. It's nice to see that finally people are embracing Bitcoin again. It was almost like, you, like a year or two ago, you couldn't talk about being a Bitcoiner. And now when I talk on the show, I could be literally talking to the founder of any other blockchain and I can say, hey, if being a Bitcoiner means that these core principles, are you a Bitcoiner? And people aren't afraid to say yes anymore. But there was like some sort of like, like scariness, like you said. It, was it a complacency? It was like a fear of being considered a big blocker, or then it was a fear of being considered like a maximalist, right? For a couple of years.
3: Yeah. Well, maximalism again started as something that was just self-evidently true. Like in back in like 2013 or 2014, it was just like every other coin was terrible. The market mm-hmm. dominance index was always like 98% or something. It was like 98% oh, Bitcoin. My God, and market- then it was like a thousand. 000- other things were like this tiny little, this was like when like BitShares and like whatever, like NXT and all this stuff was like being invented, you know, remember all that? And then, um oh my God. <laughs> and that's like before Ethereum was like, you know, there's like just this tiny thing. And it, so they were all, most of those coins just died off. Only one of them rose to be an actual, you know, sort of challenger to Bitcoin that people have even heard of, which was Ethereum, of course. And so sure. the maximism went from being like 110% true and then it has traversed a long journey, which is the over-complacency, the overconfidence and the, the complacency of just, of just thinking like, all we have to do is nothing yeah. and then we will uh, defeat everyone.
0: So, so you and I, so we're looking at that from like a scaling perspective and a growth perspective, right? And we're looking at it and we're comparing ourselves, Bitcoin, we're comparing ourselves to all these other chains that are like growing, doing, building, experimenting, throwing things at the wall, raising money, having a lot mm, of fun. Yes. But let's look at Bitcoin from like a, hey, I'm holding onto Bitcoin forever perspective and I don't want it to ever change too much or not be like backwards compatible where if you're holding Bitcoin now or if you held Bitcoin in 2009 or 10 or you buy some Bitcoin tomorrow, you never need to worry about like needing to turn on the software in a few years to upgrade or do something. That backwards compatibility is very important, which why people were afraid of doing those hard forks. Because Bitcoin was created, yeah, to be, you know, I have almost a white paper like memorized by now, but it, but it evolved into also being this like safe, hard money that people can go to. Because as Americans, we didn't really need that until now. Now we have banks failing left and right. But this, these bank failures and hyperinflations and crazy inflation and nowhere to put your money has been happening in the rest of the world since Bitcoin's existence and even beforehand. So like from that perspective, I look at Bitcoin as... As a hyper success,
3: well, yeah. I mean, the um, you can't have be reliant on upgrading the software because what if it upgrades to something that is just completely different than what it was? And it won't exactly. have any properties. And then we want, you know, we want reliability. All that was very normal to want. There was a faction that you can, you know, like the Merchant Popescu. Remember the uh, there was a faction that said never update the software and they ran like version 0.5 it, yeah. or something. They he passed away or something. I'm pretty, he's, he's, he may have died, you know, surfing in Central America. But I saw...
0: Oh, yeah. Everyone's pretending their death now. It's possible nowadays, that he yeah.
3: faked his own death. No one, but that point of view is now like the Michael Saylor point of view also,
0: which is that, you know, this is already a hundred trillion dollar asset. Is there like a business that that does this? That like you, like Epstein and all these guys use? <laughs> to like, fake their own death? And- <laughs> Yeah, there must be, be like a plug and play. Yeah, it's, oh, it doesn't you seem go, like it's that involved. You
3: get like a couple journalists involved. You know, you got an arms yeah. length. You know, you tell them that you just have an intermediary feed them the story. Then you have like some yeah. stuff. Maybe even like go and you get like a fake cadaver and you have like a shark. <laughs> yeah, the that's, face that's, or something. It's it always based and, around. And put your uh, clothes on this thing and throw it in the ocean. Yeah, oh, this person's dead. A lot of people okay. like that. Well, like that one guy, the India guy who died in India.
0: Everyone's yeah, I'm pretty sure
3: that guy's still alive, right? So,
0: yeah, I think everyone knows that guy's still alive. so <laughs> like in their heads, but we don't have any do proof or anything. Okay, so in a perfect world, what were you proposing, and and how is it applicable today? Because you guys are growing layer two, you raised just, you just raised a couple million bucks.
3: Yeah, it's very applicable today. Yeah, the point of the project, the, the drive chain, comp, uh, the drive chain concept. Which became BIPs 300 and 301 Bitcoin Improvement Proposal, and then it, which became this company in a way. Uh, the the goal of that project is to make every single transaction on Earth a Bitcoin transaction, and that includes all these payments, and it also includes any kind of you know smart contract or or fringe yes. privacy, you know zkSNARK, zcash thing, and it, imp- it includes every type of thing. So that's the goal is to have a Bitcoin go from being just one size fits all. To this whole spectrum of sensibility, privacy—you know—even decentralization, because of course not every. This is the type of thing that's difficult to say because it breaks with the Bitcoin orthodoxy, and most people are not—you know—they're not, you know, they're not uh, independent, creative thinkers enough to to wrap their heads around it. Is they just think well, do we want decentralization is good. Large, blockers wanted a, <laughs> large blockers
0: wanted a centralization. It's almost like people are afraid to even bring up these subjects anymore because because of that. So like the centralization
3: example, it, it, people are different and transactions are different. So like the coffee transaction, it doesn't need the same level of decentralization as like, you know, another kind of like someone, a uh, uh, capital flight out of a, a tyrannical country or like an online darknet market, you know, that, that would need a lot of, Privacy that would need a lot of decentralization. Indian decentralization, that would be you donate to an activist, you donate to yeah. an Assange or something. Now you need the privacy and the decentralization. But when you're buying coffee in person and you go there every week and or every day, you know, like uh, there's you know there's no reason to keep that private per se, and there's no reason to uh, care about like no one is going to try to censor that because that is a very normal thing to do. So you don't actually need the, uh, you know, there's cases where we compete yeah. with like Venmo. And we want to make sure that we, we, you know, on Venmo, everyone is just posting like exactly whatever they, they just announced publicly to the whole world. Like everything, you know, oh, it's really annoying the whole public say, this is what I'm buying.
0: <laughs> pizza, like everyone's seeing what you're spending. But that's what made right. Venmo so popular, especially during the pump. Yeah. Of course, it's the FOMO. You
3: yeah. hang out with your friends and you do the thing and then they see that they weren't invited. You're right. The business model of and- Anyway, the point is uh, we, we have different needs for decentralization. You know? There's a whole spectrum. In a perfect world, you'd have like... So Bitcoin is, claimed, Bitcoin is posted up in the, the high decentralization part. We've got like a fortress, which is great. No one, wants to, no one wants to lose that, especially not me. But we want to be able to go the whole spectrum. So the idea behind the, the idea of drive chain or whatever is that you can use different systems, different blockchains but there's no coin on them. You just send Bitcoin to them, and then they they come back through like a kind of clever uh, filter where the layer one node does not need. It, you don't need to know what's happening on the layer two node in order to process the withdrawals. And so that's the trick uh, behind it. But the idea is that you have all these different blockchains. You have like a Zcash blockchain. You have like a Monero blockchain. But there's no XMR. There's no. There's only BTC. And so that's you created that's dead, like yeah.
0: some slow withdrawal system at the same time. What does that prevent?
3: Yeah. The idea is you don't want there's there's a naive way of accomplishing side chains, which is just to require everyone to run a full node of everything. <laughs> but that doesn't work because what if someone makes a node that is like has eight terabyte blocks or that just is impossible to run? Like the, the software just uh yeah, doesn't work or it works in a chaotic way or something. So the question is how do we police the sidechain so that the, the, the withdrawals are accurate. But we don't want to, we don't actually want to put in the effort of like hiring the police or whatever, which is running the nodes. You know what I mean? We don't want yeah, to, you'd put, need to, we don't want to be on the hook. To pay for them. them
0: tokens. That's why tokens are created in a lot of these chains.
3: Well, uh, yeah. So that's how, when they're an altcoin, that's how it would work. But in this, we want to be able to do that with, uh, with no, we're not expending any effort or any energy. So what I do is I have the sidechain summarize what it's been doing. It checks in at a very rare rate of like once every few months, and it summarizes everything that it's been doing in one hash. And then the uh, the hash is just a tiny string of characters, which is very very small and very easy for the human eye to perceive. And then we have on layer in the layer one main chain Bitcoin core blockchain, there is just a little the hash is encoded in the Coinbase transaction, and then the miners ah uh, the miners can upvote it or downvote it, and if it they take three months' worth of upvoting, and they put all their weight behind this one hash, then that is considered the canonical summary, which includes the withdrawals. So it's very, very slow. It's, the idea behind it is something like if you are going to um, take an iPad or something, an iPhone, from the Apple store, it has to move very, very slowly. So you take it... So if you're leaving the store, like if you try to steal an iPhone, is yeah. the, uh, the troublesome case... You you grab the iPhone from the person on the counter, and then you run for the store. Is exit. Now, if you go immediately, go into slow motion where it takes you three months to get out the front I'll door, you. then you know the, no one has to worry. They can go home. They can call the police. The police can say we'll make it there. It on gives Tuesday. it time. You can be on vacation, People can be on vacation. It doesn't matter because it takes three months for them to get out. Yeah. So they have a long, long time for the police to show up. Or for anyone to do anything, you know, about it. For the, you know, the you, you can take a photograph of this person and send it all around town and say this person's a thief or whatever. So yeah, it's a deterrent. The, the speed and then the the reason why this is not the flip side of this isn't it inconvenient for the user? But the answer is really no because the going into the side chain, the deposits going from layer one to layer two, that is instant and that always works. Just because it's the asymmetry of requiring the full node, layer two full node to run the layer one full node, so that that direction always works uh, perfectly and in it's instant. It's only the coming back that is slow and sort of. Um,
0: but it's done uh, by design. The risk it's by design yes. when you now allow instant deposits. You are also enabling those coffee type of transactions that can now be instantaneous. But then, the if someone was like using double spent Bitcoin or or cheating or stealing or whatever, they could be the mechanism for withdrawing it is like running out of an Apple store really slowly. But then a market can be created to let people get their money, you know, faster. But then they're exactly. also like then those middlemen would be taking the, that risk. And it creates this like yeah. kind of like market and prevents Exactly. Yeah. The, what it's like is there's people outside the really Apple cool.
3: store already and they they have a bunch of iPod iPhones and they say, Well, listen, uh, if you buy it from the store, yeah. you have to you have to walk it out slowly, but I'll sell it to you for, you know, whatever. And since anyone can do this, anyone can go into the store, Apple store and do the slow thing. They can, um, yeah. anyone can uh, just buy them for, they can swap the coins out instantly to this person. And then the specialists, these like few numbers of specialists, maybe like 500, 600 people, they would use the slow withdrawal. And so those would be the specialists who walk the thing out, but then it's just time value of money. It's just an extra fee. Yeah. For you just withdraw instantly through someone else. So someone else is basically they say they have a bunch of layer one coins, they have 14 layer one coins and they buy they buy four you have 14.1 or 14.01 layer two coins, and they say, Listen, we'll just swap. It's the same HTLC that the Lightning Network uses or anything, any other thing, any exchange, you know, Coinbase, whatever.
0: You make it really easy to to make all the connections all point together and you've been around a long time so you understand what what needs to happen. And it's not just about math, it's also about socioeconomics too. But Paul, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming on and and talking to us about drive chains and side chains and what you're working on at Layer 2 Labs. Thanks for having me. I hope you guys like that. That brings us to the end of this episode. A huge thank you to our producers, to our guests, the writers, everyone, Neil, Leo, Paul, the folks at Waxman, everyone for putting the show together for do in-depth discussions about the innovative projects pushing the boundaries of blockchain technology. As we continue to explore the world of blockchain, remember your feedback is so crucial to us. Your feedback, your views, everything, subscribing, please take a moment to leave that review, share this episode. I love doing this for you guys. I love you all. Stay tuned for next week's episode, more enlightening conversations. Until then, I'm Charlie Shrem, and as always, thank you for listening. Keep exploring, keep learning, keep questioning, keep challenging the status quo.